Hey guys, what's up? My name is Raylia Lewis and welcome back to Everything is Everything. Today's show, I really want to do a mental health check-in. This episode is a very personal episode for me. I think it's super important that we continue to create safe spaces and more dialogue around mental health, especially at a time like this. COVID-19 is a trigger for so many people who struggle with mental illness. And I would first like to share my experiences with mental illness because when my symptoms began, I felt very isolated and very alone because I didn't know anyone else who was dealing with anything like this. So I had nobody to educate me. I had no tools on how to deal with it or, or even identify it. So I struggled for years internally and silently with this big secret that I felt like I was keeping from everyone else. And one thing I've learned in life is that when you're unwilling to meet something and give it a title, you give it so much power over you that you allow it to destroy you. Because until you can call out your demons name by name and know what they are, you can't combat them or fix them. And I tell myself that all the time. Like you have to be very upfront about, you know, your shortcomings and anything else that just goes against your comfort, your peace of mind, and just a positive mindset. So for that reason, I was forced to examine where my anxiety stemmed from. And as far back as I can remember, I've always just been a very anxious person. I don't know why. And that's why I'm bringing a therapist on here today to give me some more insight on why some people are just more prone to worry and anxiety versus others. But before we get into that conversation, more background on my own mental illness story. And I really don't know why I've always been just fearful and full of worry, but that's just always been my normal. So growing up, I was always anxious. I suffered at night. Um, just going to sleep was hard for me. Like insomnia was a part of my life for as long as I can remember. And as I got older and I reached adulthood, I actually started to have like physical symptoms from my worries and I started to deal with anxiety and panic attacks. My first one started when I was 19. I was on set and I was getting my makeup done and it was a huge job. So I was nervous. I was excited. I had all these expectations about my performance and what I could do. And I think just giving myself all of that unneeded pressure caused me to have an anxiety attack. But at that time, I didn't understand how you can worry yourself into an anxiety attack if you have anxiety. So I just was doing what I would normally do. And that would just be worried, be doubtful, second guess myself. You know, we're all humans. We all do that at times. And that caused me to have an anxiety attack. And I brushed that experience under the rug because I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just like a bad reaction to food or something. Like I had no idea what was going on, but it kept happening. It would happen on dates. Would happen in, it would happen at social gatherings. It would happen on other jobs. And it really started to kind of mess up my, my social life. And I felt like I wasn't functioning as a normal human being anymore. And it would make me really insecure and really afraid about what my future would look like. Because I'm like, if I can't come to terms and be able to breathe on sets and and, you know, in regular environments, like how am I going to be able to hold the job and how am I going to be able to, you know, deal with rejection and deal with like just life's um, turmoil. Like life is up and down, you know, you and you kind of want to feel like you can 
deal with whatever life throws at you. But I felt like I was just losing my mind and I didn't know why. So I did some research. I went to Dr. Google <laughs> and Google led me to anxiety disorder. And there was just so much information and I got some closure and I thought that I healed myself. I stopped having anxiety attacks for years. I was still worried, but like it wasn't like debilitating to my health. I wasn't getting like any physical symptoms. Nothing was out of the norm for a while. And then one day I was on set. It was a bridal job. Of course, I'm always nervous before any job. That's just me. I still get nervous. No matter how many runways I walk down, I still get nervous. And I was there and I, I wasn't drinking enough water and it was the summertime and I passed out. But that... That episode of fainting really like traumatized the hell out of me because I was like convinced that there was something else wrong with me. And I was trying to not go to the hospital, but I would wake up and I would be weak. I would be dizzy. I would just feel like off. And this went on for weeks. I just want to reiterate that my symptoms went on for weeks. And when I tell you I was so paranoid, I couldn't even keep down a meal. And my body was doing all kinds of crazy shit. Like when I tell you I was like suffering with like IBS symptoms. One day my gland was swollen. Another day my throat was burning and I felt like I couldn't keep anything down. I had indigestion. I had acid reflux. I was freaking out. And I didn't really understand the correlation between the mind and the body. I didn't know that you can think yourself into like sickness. So due to me lacking knowledge on that, I allowed my fears to manifest and to just get worse. And I went to the doctor, paranoid in a frenzy. And she looked at me like I was losing my motherfucking mind. I literally had like a list of bizarre symptoms that didn't pinpoint to just one thing. And I don't think that Doctors really understand solely how the mind and the body can work together and like do things because they look at things from a very like book smart perspective and they're not therapists. So they don't even know. So she was confused herself. So she gave me all these recommendations and referrals to specialists. She wanted to make sure I didn't have anything going on in my body. And she also recommended that after I got a clean bill of health, that I should go talk to a behavior specialist. I didn't want to talk to anybody, but I was desperate. So I did everything that she told me to do. I went to every single appointment. All foul play was ruled out and I had a clean bill of health. Thank God. And I do not take that for granted. I am so grateful. So I did the next thing she told me to do. And I went and I talked to a behavior specialist. What I didn't like about that experience was just that I felt really judged and really misunderstood. She kept hinting towards suicide and I'm not suicidal, so I was offended. And I was trying to get her to understand that I know what's going on. I just need tools on how to manage it holistically. But she was more focused on like, are you keeping anything from me? Are you really being honest? Like, what's really going on? And I'm like, I'm telling you what's happening. Just listen. And she just couldn't be that for me. One thing she did tell me was that I had to learn how to identify my triggers. And that was one thing that I walked away with and I was grateful for. But that whole experience honestly made me not want to talk to anybody else. So I went back to the drawing board and I went back to Google and I started to research anxiety and health anxiety again because I knew what was going on. 
And throughout my research, I discovered this guy called the Anxiety Guy. And he's basically a YouTuber who documents his experiences with health anxiety. And when I found him, oh my God, I felt so relieved, so free. And the stigma that I created around health anxiety immediately like disappeared. I felt like I finally found someone who understood me. Like there was someone else in the world who was just like me. I wasn't strange. I wasn't crazy. This was just my struggle. And this was just my assignment. And seeing him just gave me that freedom to, you know, kind of just diagnose what it was, not be afraid of it, not be ashamed of it and talk about it. And that's why I think it's so important that we continue to just, you know, have healthy conversations and create content surrounding mental health. So for that reason today, my guest is the therapist. Her name is Rebecca Clark. She has her own practice in Northern Liberties. And I am so excited to chat with her because I have so many questions about anxiety and mental health and mental illness. And I just want everybody to walk away better, to walk away more informed, and to also just learn how to be more compassionate. Because even if you're not affected, you know, by mental illness, I'm sure you love someone who is. So with saying all that, let's get the interview started. Okay, so hi, Rebecca. Please tell the listeners more about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Hi, um, so I am a licensed clinical social worker, and right now I'm running a small private practice in Northern Liberties in Philly. That's um, perfect. I specialize. Yeah, I, I specialize in working with adults with PTSD or um, people who have a history of traumatic experience in their early development or in their adult life. And I also have a special interest in working with compassion fatigue or people that have exposure to secondary trauma, maybe working in a helping profession, mental health or medical field or uh, first responder positions. Wow. Okay. So you are perfect for this interview because I have so many questions. So I'm just going to get started. My first question is, it took me a really long time to understand that there was a correlation between the mind and the body in regards to mental health. Can your body's chemistry make your make you more susceptible to mental illness regardless of environmental factors and genetics? That is an amazing question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we could do like 10 podcasts on that one. Um, I mean, it's really like a century long and evolving dialogue in the mental health field. Um, so with mental health we we look at thoughts we look at feelings in the body we look at emotions and behaviors so uh it's different than say like diabetes where we have a mere uh, like a more clear biological uh markers and and criteria for understanding and separating the genetic components okay um we know there can be genetic risk factors but we do not really know clearly and definitively the extent to which those genetic components directly influence mental health because it's such a it's really a complex interwoven fabric so including you know early developmental events events throughout your lifespan yeah attachment relationships you know environmental factors and all of those things alter our body's chemistry and our body state and our hormone production and our metabolism of stress hormones. And then all of those things influence our thought patterns and our behavior. 
Okay. So I asked that question because I'm one of six. And my little brother and I, we both deal with anxiety. But my other siblings are completely, like, fine. Like, we were all raised in the same household, under the same rules, under the same environmental factors. And him and I are the only one who struggle with mental illness. And my mother, she was always, like, a chronic worrier. Like, she was, like, so superstitious. If, if a broom hit her foot, she had to spit on it. She wouldn't let us stay the night out because she was worried about, like, a house catching on fire. Like, that was just her. So that's why I really wanted to know why me and my brother are the only two who really picked up on like those fear patterns and why we are so prone to worry regardless of you know what we are normally exposed to versus my other siblings who don't seem to really worry about anything yeah it's it's really interesting to look at i mean um first i think it's really good to understand that every human on this earth has intense periods of emotional turmoil and Impulsive patterns and body sensations or, you know, patterns related to fear or sadness or anger or, or, or any of those things, if you really got down to it. Okay. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's really complex as we talked about before, and, and it's almost like trying to identify the exact kind of science and factors related to a person's perception in any given moment. So it's really based on a, an individual journey, and that includes perception is shaped by every experience and encounter and relationship, your body state in that moment, your health factors, you know, all of those things. Um, so it's, it's, it's a complex, you know, there are different ways of expression and, and perception, and, and so, like in trauma-informed models of therapy, we look at the coherence to symptoms. Mm-hmm. So looking at them with like a pro-symptom approach, meaning that we see that they have an adaptive function that's rooted in survival. So like example, with anxiety, we're designed as animals to, to really like store and react to cues in our environment to keep us safe. So we're walking along and we get bitten by a snake and we're injured. And then the next time we see a snake, we're designed to react really quickly. Our bodies, you know, are, are tuned into our, our environment to look out for snakes. And then when we see the shape of a snake or we hear the hissing uh, or a hissing in our environment that sounds reminiscent of a snake, we have this jolt of adrenaline and cortisone. It's cortisone. sort of like PST, PTSD, right? Yeah, well, we just basically, we jump into action within milliseconds so we can like, you know, fight or or flee or freeze to move out of danger. So it's a protective mechanism of storing that. So, you know, maybe some people potentially, uh, this this complex picture of it, but maybe some people have a higher baseline level of nervous system activation. Okay. They're more prone to anxiety, whether it's inherited or environmental or likely a, a combination. And then, you know, walking through the world, where our our very amazing brains uh, code cues and situations as a threat or dangerous to protect us, that kind of shapes that that inner world. So, I mean, example, right? In school, say we have an experience in the classroom where we get called on in class and we can't answer a question and everyone laughs at us, maybe we're bullied by our peers, and then we we might feel disconnected from our peers and this feels to the body and the brain like a threat to survival almost. Mm-hmm. So later, you know, with those 
little experiences later throughout life, maybe for that individual situations in which there were similar cues, like maybe performance situations or public speaking or work events, a shot of that fiery cocktail, the stress hormones like cortisol, adrenaline, they're released in our bodies to prepare us for it. So then we might respond to this by maybe we might try to overprepare, study harder, or we might develop patterns of relating to the world based on that body state and the cues from earlier memories. And and they're really often they're beneath our level of conscious awareness. Mm. Um, possibly for some people, we might also start to relate to the actual body sensations of anxiety as dangerous. And so when we start to notice those sensations in the body, we become more anxious about feeling anxious. That's so me. That's me in a nutshell. Me too. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's crazy. So that kind of leads me to my next question, which I kind of feel like you may have answered, but I'm just going to say it again for the listeners. So my next question is, how big of a role can your environment play in your mental health? A huge role. Um, so, you know, with environment, we look at uh, access to resources, your living environment, your your support system, your nutrition, your health status, maybe any injuries you've had, uh, self-care strategies, community, your access as an individual to creative or, or spiritual outlets, you know, exposure to toxins, your sleep cycle, the um, nurturing figures and, and role models and people that you've met throughout your life. Um, and, and the conditions and the support that we have surrounding us at home or in our jobs or in school settings, etc. So a huge role, you know, we know that experiences involving loss or perceived danger or both can correlate to mental health symptoms throughout our lives. And um, we know that the support systems and the outlets we have surrounding those experiences they can really impact our perception and, and processing of those events dramatically. Um, and we know that you know safe and, and stable and nurturing internal and external environments and conditions can be created and like recreated throughout our lives, which is a good thing to remember. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So my next question, I've been noticing just almost like an increase in like mental illness or the conversation surrounding it, which is great because I feel like the stigma, you know, is kind of changing, shifting. But why do you think mental health or mental illness is so common today? Yeah, you have really good questions. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I think um, I think we have a long way to go. But in my career, I've been doing this for like 13 years. So Throughout that time, personally, I've seen um, a really marked increase in, in example, young adults seeking help earlier on over the years. Mm, okay. I feel like there's one component of, of to your answer to your question is I think that stigma is decreasing gradually, slowly. Um, maybe awareness is increasing. You know, maybe we're acknowledging and we're identifying and we're possibly diagnosing with more frequency in the, than in the past. Um, but two, another, this is, I, I kind of think that it's possible there's a link to the way we live with technology in this world. Mm. Um, so I think that's twofold. Like, I think it's a great tool uh, for, for outreach, for awareness, for prevention, connection, especially right now with the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but I think it can be also 
harmful at times. So like example, you're seeing people on social media and then you're using this as a comparison to yourself and maybe feeling more disconnected or, yeah, you know, like different or flawed or inadequate. Um, Cause you know, we really, we, we paint a picture of our best selves with social media. Mm-hmm. We, uh, and I think without open conversations about our inner world, it, it can really make us feel alone and it might increase mental health symptoms. That's so true because for me, my problem is Dr. Google. Like I cannot stay off of Google and WebMD. So like I will literally like diagnose myself like with a mo- the most chronic and like deadliest disease. And then I'll be like having panic attacks and like I'm so anxious I can't eat. I just think we have too much information. Yes, yes, yes. It is. It's definitely twofold. It's It can be a huge dilemma. Yes. Absolutely. So my next question is, can mental illness be cured or is it a lifelong journey? Another good question. I mean, in, um, in my world in trauma-informed therapy, we look at the whole person, right? And like, if you really, if you looked at like a very diagnostic or medical model, then example, maybe I'm working with someone who has PTSD and over time, and with treatment or intervention and, and all of the ways that they're, they're working on the whole picture of their lives, then they might not meet the criteria for PTSD any longer. So, um, you know, some people might see this as being cured. Mm-hmm. But I think another way of looking at this is that there's, there's not like one linear path or timestamp with healing and recovery with mental health. And, and I think that I view it as a lifelong journey, you know, like your symptoms may ebb and flow during times of stress or loss, they might be magnified. Yeah. And I kind of feel like the goal is not being cured or like eliminating them totally because they'll inevitably they'll come and go in our lives, but rather that we relate to them differently, understand them differently. We build our resources and our sense of meaning and purpose and outlets and strategies and, we work with, with the body. And then I think it's like, you know, over time strategies that work for us now, we need to keep reevaluating them over the years and adding to them and adjusting and fine tuning. And like, if we can really understand our patterns and our triggers, then we can continue that journey. So it's sort of like a bit of, of maintenance and a bit of a lifelong journey. That's, that's sort of an opportunity as well. That makes so much sense because I noticed with my anxiety that it progressed. Like, first, I thought it went away. I thought I was healed at one point. And then, like, a few years later, all of my symptoms got worse. And, like, I didn't know what was going on. So that was, like, a very life-changing moment for me because no one even talks about your mental illnesses progressing. Yes, definitely. And it can feel really scary. Yes, because you have to relearn what is going on in your body. It's so scary. Yes, yeah. So I decided... I mean, oh, sorry. I'll let you finish your point. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Okay, so I decided to embark on a holistic healing journey with my anxiety. As a therapist, do you recommend holistic healing? I absolutely recommend holistic healing. Um You know, I can relate to this both personally and professionally. I definitely have a personal understanding of anxiety and like a lot of therapists do, Um, (laughs) uh, you know, a lot of people do really. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, it's been important to look at the whole picture 
personally and with my clients. So, um, you know, I think I, for me, and, and I, this has been really helpful to look at therapy and, and mindfulness and meditation practices and, and nutrition and spirituality and exercise and um, managing emotion regulation in the body and just continuing to like reevaluate that over time, like really being intentional and, and connecting with people and to, to values and purpose. And I think your journey changes throughout your life. For you know, sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a, an absolutely crucial way of, of looking at things in terms of a holistic picture or whole person approach. Okay. So when I was at my breaking point with anxiety, I was desperate to get help, but I knew that I didn't want to do medicine because of the side effects. Is that a common, a common misconception or are medications always surrounding or involving like some kind of like health issue or risk factor? I mean, so for psychopharmaceuticals, um, we do, we know that every person's brain is, is very unique. And so no one course of action with or without medication is an exact science. Um, and, and every medication does come with possible side effects. Mm. So, and, and that is really important to be aware of. And like often with psychopharmaceuticals, it takes time to identify the right medication for you as an individual. Sometimes that means trial and error you know, example, it's looking at and monitoring your progress and your side effects over six to eight weeks or longer with each medication until you find the right fit. Okay. Um, I think in my experience, medication doesn't work on its own. And I think any therapist would say that. Mm. I think it can be one helpful tool of many. And then the other part of this is, you know, it, it can be a lot more important to consider depending on the level of impairment and functioning. So like if you haven't slept for weeks or you're so depressed that you can't, you know, you can't eat, you can't leave the house to go to therapy or connect with people that might be supportive or if there's like a risk of, of harming yourself for your reputation, um, then the medication certainly fits here. Okay. But I also think it, it's, you know, it needs to be in partnership with a good physician or psychiatrist that can guide you, follow your progress with you, explain things, answer questions, and then in conjunction with, um, you know, with therapy or other forms of healing, looking at the whole picture. Yeah, because when I talk to people who's taking medication, they always tell me they feel worse, like they feel suicidal, they feel more depressed, or they hallucinate. So I just I just decided like I would just figure it out the natural route because I didn't want anything to impair my brain or make me feel worse. So that was just my issue with medication was like, you know, I don't want to start feeling suicidal when I'm not normally suicidal due to the medication. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And those are really serious side effects that need to be taken seriously, you know, and that and that doesn't happen always. Um, and not to every person, but those are, you know, those are serious side effects. So are those like, are those more of the extreme, like rare side effects? They can definitely happen with medications. It's not that they're extremely common, but I think that the most important part is, is really like having a partnership. You know, if you're taking medication, then 
if you're considering it, write down a list of questions, get a lot of information and data and, and understand what the side effects could be to keep yourself safe, work in partnership with a doctor and, and a therapist too, maybe, and uh, you know, really monitor what's going on for you and the changes. And I think that way it's, you know, it, it, it can be helpful, useful, and a tool as part of a whole you know, package of support for someone. Okay. So during this pandemic, what are some things people can do to manage their mental illness, keep their, you know, themselves feeling better? This is a tough time for people. So what can they do? What are some tools? Yes, it is. It's a really, you know, we're dealing with collective and and individual loss and grief and change in routine and Mm. just huge changes, aren't we? And a lot of worry um, and deficits in basic needs. And and, and I think that the thing to think about is that our brains do not like uncertainty. Yes. So, (laughs) right? It's like the brain searching for a threat or a danger in it. Like it can't land on anything. And uh, it's really hard because then we can can get into this like chronic state of anxiety or nervous system arousal. so I think it's really important right now, especially to set a foundation routine. So like create some areas of certainty in our day-to-day lives and write out a basic routine and use that as a safety net. Um, it could be really basic too, like getting up and you shower and you dress at a certain time. If possible, you can go and, and walk or move your body in, your, in the space that you have. Uh, cooking or eating at set times, maybe calling someone each day at a set time, just have like a basic foundation of rest into of certainty and predictable activities. Um, I think it's very important to, to take time every day as part of that for mindfulness. So by that, I mean um, an activity that kind of slows us down and helps us stay in the present moment. So. It could be formal meditation, or it could be something like coloring, or or movement, or walking, or cooking, or cleaning. But like while you're doing it, really paying attention to what we're doing with our five senses, and just keep refocusing gently every time you notice your thoughts wandering. Um, Tara Brock has the, a great strategy you can find online. It's called Rain. Okay. And it's like a simple four-step process for using mindfulness in difficult situations Um, and and that's that's helpful there's some videos of that that people can look at i think connection is is crucial right now Uh so that you know talking to people and expressing how you're feeling um setting an intention maybe with the other person to talk about COVID briefly if you must and then really, you know, trying to focus on how you're feeling, how you're coping, what's working, how you can support each other. Um, you know, maybe find online support groups or a blog or a helpline if you need to connect with people that way or express things in writing. Um, and I think, too, part of this is, like, limit your news intake. So Yes. Right? Like, yes. <laughs> period. Don't do it before bed, example. We really need our rest. So, and be intentional. So, example, I am I'm, I'm going on to BBC News to get some new facts and update myself. And then I'm going to do that for 15 minutes this morning. 
and, and kind of really set an intention there. Okay. And for me, it does, like, I can't listen to the news first thing in the morning. It just kind of throws off my whole day, especially during this, like, COVID-19 crisis because it's so negative. They're projecting all of these deaths and, you know, everything just seems to get worse and worse. I just cannot start my day like that, nor can I end my day like that. So I'm glad you touched on that because the news for me is a no-no. Yeah, that's so good. And like, I like how you're, you know, you're kind of tuning into your body and the impact on your day when you use that at specific times, you know, and, and really tuning into that. Like, yeah. Affecting me. Yeah, I think that's important when you're doing a holistic healing process. You really have to look within and like figure out your triggers, like you mentioned earlier, and also just do things that you know make you feel better. So I'm always looking within to make sure my body likes what's happening or my mind is like having a positive like effect on what I'm watching or what I'm listening to. And I cut out the news and violent movies a long time ago. Yeah, it's, that's so important. And, and I like, you're, you're kind of looking at the whole picture and then like as, as much as we tune into that over the course of our day, it kind of builds different patterns of relating to that stuff. Yeah. You know, you build on that. You do, you do. So my next question should everyone see a therapist at some point in their lives? Um, I don't, I don't, I think that there isn't really any one option. It's really an individual journey if you look at the whole picture, right? And um, I think it can be very helpful. You know, I have a therapist, most therapists have a therapist. Um, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, you know, the majority of therapists I really respect and, and, and value, uh, you know, they do that work because it can really help to have a neutral person to help you explore and like process issues in your life. Um, and it, it, I think that you also might find in your life that different ways of healing are more of a fit at that time. And, and also that if you are going from the therapy route, the specific types of therapists and modalities of within therapy are helpful at different times in your life. Okay. So, I mean, I guess like if you, I think the most important thing is if you're going to see a therapist, then to really kind of think about what you want to get out of therapy, ask a lot of questions, you know, write those things down, make sure that you feel listened to and supported and safe. And if it doesn't feel right to, talk to the therapist about it or find a new therapist that does feel right. Okay. That makes so much sense. So that was my last question. Where can listeners connect with you and learn more about your practice? Um, I can be found on psychology today, which is a really good resource for searching for a therapist. Um, my name is Rebecca Clark with an E on the end of Clark and I'm in Philadelphia. Um, so yeah, they can look me up that way. I have a few uh, resources for people that might be working out there as first responders or grocery store employees or healthcare professionals. Um, I don't know if there's a, a way where you can put that on your website where they, they are organizations that are offering free therapy for people during the coronavirus. Yeah, sure. Just you can send me that information over and also feel free to, you know, give some of those resources out verbally right now. And if you can, you have them on hand. I do, yeah. So, well, one of them is called uh, True Relevution. And so that's true, R-E-L-O-V-E-U-T-I-O-N.com. 
and that is a free therapy resource for first responders and healthcare professionals who are out there during the coronavirus. Um, another one is coronavirustherapy.online, and that is a resource for free therapy for grocery store employees or healthcare professionals or first responders or someone who's serving us out there during the pandemic. Those are good resources. That's amazing that they also have these platforms even available to these workers because they're going through so much right now. So thank you for letting us know about that. Yeah, I think it's really important. I'm a volunteer with both of those organizations, and um, I yeah, and I appreciate your your podcast and what you're doing. This is thank really, you, really thank you so much for being on my podcast. I was really excited about this interview, so I appreciate your time. <laughs> Me too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So I really hope that that interview helped you guys cope with whatever it is you may be going through internally, mentally. Um, We're all in this together. And I know that sounds super cliche, but we truly are. COVID-19 is affecting everybody, whether you have it, whether you love someone who has it or who has lost their life from it, whether you're dealing with financial issues due to being out of work and not receiving unemployment. Like, I mean, the list goes on and on. We are all dealing with our own baggage and our own loads. And that's why I wanted to just have this conversation because I think that while we're all on the pursuit of happiness and success, we have to also prioritize and make time for our mental health. And, you know, seeing that meme on Instagram isn't enough. Like we need to be having conversations, informative conversations And just real conversations, talking about what we experience, what we go through, and talking to professionals, because that was a free therapy session, essentially. So, like I said, I hope that you guys enjoyed that conversation, and I can't wait to see you guys back here next week on Everything is Everything. See you later.